Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me as we turn to Matthew 26, reading together verses 14 through 25 of Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is going, just as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely not I, Rabbi, Jesus said to him. You yourself said it. The word of the Lord. Will you join me in raising your hands and asking God's blessing on his word? Father, this is your word. It is eternal. It is true. And it is for us, and we pray, Father, that our hearts will be joined together in considering your word, and that our minds will be knit as well, and that together we may learn and be convicted by the Spirit, the powerful lessons in these verses, of these verses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. It's apparent that the betrayal of Christ by Judas is a thing that goes on in parts and is not all at once a fit of passion. And Judas, prior to the Last Supper, had gone to the chief priests and arranged to deliver Jesus. That's the nature of the betrayal, is a time when people will not be around when it will be safe for them to come and take him. Remember, they had said, look, if we go after him now, we've got to do it in secret because otherwise the crowds will be against us. Judas is committing to bring Jesus to them or to bring them to Jesus, as it were, in secret. That's the nature of betrayal so that they can find him at a moment when he will not be surrounded by the crowds. <clears throat> they pay him for doing so. 30 pieces of silver. Sometimes people make it out that these 30 pieces of silver are worth $30 or something like that today because of the value of silver today. So it's obviously not the value at that point of 30 pieces of silver because they go out and they buy a field with it. And so it's a significant sum. It's enough to purchase a field which they commit to being a, a, a potter's field. It's been 
we take the term to refer for land that's for the poor who can't afford a grave. That's what we call a potter's field. It's a cemetery for the poor. They buy that with Judas's money, the, the money thrown to the potter. And so it's a significant amount of money, 18, 20,000, 30,000, something in that range. It's not as much as the nard of last week that was poured on Jesus by Mary, but it's, it's not an inconsiderable sum. It's not pennies. And so having done that, the Bible takes us to the events that, that proceed from that initial commitment. Um, the Last Supper, Jesus saying someone's going to betray me the departure of Judas. Now, it's important that you recognize, that all of us recognize, as we look at the Word of God, especially as we consider the last chapters that we've been in, and the the chapters that are ahead, that Jesus, in the teaching that he has done on these last days of his life. And really, if you look throughout his life, it's true, it's consistent of all his teaching, all right? Jesus does go to the north. He does go to the Gentiles for a a journey, and he preaches there. But in the bulk of his teaching, and especially the teaching of the Olivet Discourse where he warns about the signs of the end, where he warns about many people falling away, where he warns that brother will betray brother and sister, sister, where those deep warnings are voiced that then follow from that into our need to be watching and waiting faithfully, okay? And then from there, the parable of the five wise and the five unwise virgins, then the parable of the talents, then finally this, the, the warning of the last day of judgment. He says, I'm going to judge, I'm going to be seated on my throne, I'm going to separate sheep from goats. That In all this teaching, he is speaking to disciples. Let that sink in for a moment. Most of Jesus' teaching is within the context of God's chosen people, Israel, the church. But in these final days, all these warnings, all these statements, all these calls to be aware of the end, to be watching and waiting, to not let your oil go out, to be bearing fruit and not hiding your bushel, to be sure that when you come to him, that you know him and are on his right side rather than his left, these are warnings to you. Jesus teaches his disciples. Some years ago, I was, I, was, I was growing up in Chicago, and I heard of a new church that had started, and I went and visited. My dad preached it. It was called Willow Creek Community Church. And uh, one of the founders of it was a, a real fan of my father, and so he had my dad come and speak a number, on several occasions. And, and that church grew and influenced churches all across America, and the theory of that church was that the, the, the basic teaching ministry of the church is designed to be, meant by God to be, to the, to the seeker, as they called it, as Bill Hybels called it, to the seeker, 
to the outsider and that this is the goal of the church to bring people in so that we can teach them God's truth. This turns the way Jesus did things inside out. Jesus taught his disciples and those disciples brought others to him and brought others and they went out. That is the calling of the church. Jesus is speaking in these verses to you and not to them out there. He's not. This is just the character of the church. It's the character of Christ's teaching. We need to be aware that the, the teaching ministry of the church is directed at the disciples and that God says that when the teaching ministry of a church and when the people come together for worship and those who from outside come in, they will be convicted. The secrets of their hearts will be laid bare by, by the holiness of the people gathered in worship of God, not by dumbing it down to the point where they feel it's about like a Super Bowl party. All right? Now, recognizing this, I want to turn our attention to the final example that we find in Scripture of Jesus' teaching that's been going on all week. There are two examples that act as the coda, like kind of at the end of the teaching, it's added on, the ending of the teaching of this week. One, Mary, last week we looked at her, this great woman of God who, who gave her, her precious vial, $60,000 worth of, of nard, poured out on Christ, and who was approved by Christ, honored by Christ, and who we honor today. She's done what she could. She did what she could, and it was glorious, and she's remembered throughout all time for that. One of the greatest and most famous people of all time because of the way she gave her money, her treasure to Jesus Christ. What a glory. But that is an example of all the positive side that Jesus has been teaching in this week. You know, the sheep, the, the five virgins who are ready and waiting have extra oil. The, the servants of the master who, who actually do something with what they're given rather than the one who hides it in the ground. We have a very, very striking example that finishes. It's the finale, of, in a sense, of the teaching of this week. And it's as negative as the first is positive. And that's Judas. Judas is a warning to you, to me. And it's a warning that we need to take seriously. The great apostle Paul who teaches us how secure we are in Christ, nevertheless, is also the apostle who says, make sure to make your calling and election short. Or who says, I worry that at the end of my life, having preached the gospel to others, I may end up a shipwreck. Can you imagine Paul saying that? At the end of his life, you say, Paul, are you not Pauline? Come on, Paul, you're the one who taught us not to worry. And he says, I am concerned that I, having preached, not end up being one of those false apostles who's in it for himself. And I want to say to you, are you in your Christianity for yourself or for the glory of God? Oh, we have an example before us this morning. Terrible example. I've gone through the teaching of Christ. I've gone through the, the things he's warned about. But it, <laughs> now we're face to face with reality. 
Some of you probably are aware that there's an explosive device in the steering wheel of your car. How many of you are aware of that? <laughs> few of you. It's true. Um, how many of you have felt the work of that explosive device? I have. Is it fun? No, you're driving down the road and you never think that there's an explosive device in the steering wheel until you hit a car head on and the airbag goes bang and you go, oh, and the airbag is, I mean, you, uh, Dakota's husband, Nate, did it hurt? Not really. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're such a man. Yeah, it didn't hurt. <laughs> you're, you, you had, a, you had an effeminate airbag then. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, when it went off in my face, it left bruises on both my arms. And, and uh, despite the fact that I'm hemophiliac, they really hurt. And I was coughing. Were you coughing? Okay, you were coughing. At least he admits that. All right. Well, this is what we have. We have all the warnings and their warnings. Yeah, yeah. There's an explosive device there in your dashboard, in your steering wheel, on the pillars of your car. An explosive Suddenly, bang, you see it. It's right here. It's there in Matthew. Everything he said coming to life in Judas. So I want to speak this morning about Judas because the Bible forces us to, and it won't be the last time we look at Judas because the Bible brings us back to him again. And I want to talk to you about the nature of Judas's faith, and you may say that's a contradiction in terms, David. No, it's not. It is not a contradiction in terms. If your faith is as strong as Judas's, good. I hope it's even stronger. But that is not sufficient any more than it was sufficient for the high priests and the Pharisees who believed in Jesus, the Bible tells us. But we're not willing, because of the pressure of the Jews, to, they were afraid. We're not willing to own him, speak of him before the world, recognize him as Lord. And that was true belief, and it was not sufficient. So we're going to talk about Judas's faith. We're going to talk about his awful friends, and I'm going to ask you, what kind of a friend are you? And then finally, we're going to... Uh, Look at the, what causes his fall, the nature of his fall. First, Judas's faith. And I mean, in, in a sense, if, if you're looking in the way that we typically look at people and say, is their faith fruitful? Well, you're going to say, yeah, Judas's faith is fruitful. And I don't know what kind of criteria you use for fruitful faith, you know? But by any measurement, that you might have, probably Judas is going to fit within your fruitful category. You may say, well, do they attend church? Do they read the Bible? Do they know Jesus? All these are things that Judas could say. You may say, um, well, I want more action. You know, I want opposition to sin. I want Judas to be out at the abortion clinic protesting. Well, he may not have been out at the abortion clinic. They didn't have him then. But he was opposing sin. He was preaching the kingdom of God. He was sent out to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he did it. Judas was, a, in one sense, a very fruitful guy. We know a fair amount, of, amount about him. 
Actually, we know more about Judas than we know about many disciples. And though there are negatives to be said about Judas, there are negatives to be said about Peter and Thomas and Simon the Zealot and Matthew, right? Tax collector. What is striking about Judas is how much he really was a follower of Jesus as one of the twelve. How much apparently and in fact he was a man of, of faith, a faithful follower, a man who truly believed in Jesus. And you say, oh David, that's not true. Well, we're going to come to his manner of death, but if you don't think Judas believed that Jesus was the Son of God and innocent, then you haven't thought about the meaning of his death and his manner of death. You just haven't. You know, he committed suicide, tried to return the money, sought repentance. Even in his death and his despair over his own sin and betraying Jesus, what is clear is that he knows and believes that Jesus is not only innocent, but pure and powerful, that he's innocent, that he is the Son of God. Now, what do we know of the faith of Judas? Well, first, Judas was chosen. It's indisputable that Jesus chose Judas. From the very beginning of the listing of the disciples, he's there in, in among the 12. The manner of his calling is not revealed as it is for some, but there are many for whom it's not stated. It's very clear that he was called by Christ. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, when many disciples fell away, because he taught the crowds that his body was true food, his blood true drink, Jesus turned to the 12 after the many had, had departed, and he asked if they too would leave. Peter responded, Lord, where would we go if not with you? You alone have the words of life. You remember that? Jesus answers this declaration by Peter. Did I myself not choose you, plural? And then he adds, the 12. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. <laughs> Jesus himself says, I chose you, Judas. I chose you to be my disciple. John adds, now he meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. There is no question, Judas was chosen by Christ, knowingly, intentionally chosen to be a disciple, and yet understood by Christ at the, at the time of his choosing him that he was a devil, to be a devil. Judas was chosen, further, he was beloved. In Acts 1, Luke records the apostle Peter after Christ's ascension into heaven, after the resurrection, Apostle Peter stands among the 120 who are, 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 this is before Pentecost, but after the ascension, stands before the 120 who are worshiping Jesus at that time, and he quotes Psalm 109, and he says, the Bible, King David says this, therefore, we must choose a replacement for Judas. He says, let another take his office. He quotes David. He specifically says that in his psalm, David was speaking of Judas. He says, David was writing about Judas. 
And in that psalm, just prior to saying, let another take his office, David writes of this same individual who he's saying, let someone take his office, they have surrounded me. Now, he's writing in the words of Christ. He's, he's personifying Christ. He says, they have surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer, thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for love. Then he goes on and says, let another take his place. Jesus says he loved Judas. It's undeniable. He was beloved of Christ. He repaid the love of Christ with betrayal. In another psalm about the Messiah, David writes of Christ's betrayer, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. It's not a, it's not a Roman centurion or a Roman soldier. Then I could hide myself from it, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Judas was a companion of Christ. They enjoyed sweet fellowship together. They walked together in the house of God with joy as friends. And when the many departed and the 12 stayed, Judas stayed because Jesus was his friend. So we have his knowledge, his being chosen. We have, if we're going to flesh out the portrait of Judas. We have to add that he had power. Judas had power. He worked miracles by faith. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry. Absolutely nothing in Scripture differentiates Judas from the rest of the 12, from the disciples in the realm of power, in the realm of spiritual authority. He too was sent out when Christ sent them out to preach. It says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons. He didn't call the 11 and give it. He gave all 12 power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. He was a preacher. He was a miracle worker. He understood the call and the power of the kingdom, and he went out as an agent of that kingdom. In fact, Herod hears of the, the mighty deeds by the 12. He concludes, John the Baptist has to have come back from the dead. I killed him, and he's risen. That's the kind of power exercised by Judas. He is given power by Jesus, authority over all demons and to heal diseases. And yet, Jesus knows that he is a devil. A devil casting out demons for a time because at this time, he has not been entered by Satan. He is a follower. He is a friend. He is a believer. And he returns with the rest, rejoicing that the spirits have been subject to him. Most telling of all, Peter says this in Acts 1 when starting the process that I spoke of earlier of choosing Judas's replacement. Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. A crowd of about 120 persons were there together. And he said... Men, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He was counted among us. The world looked at Jesus and his followers and Judas was one of them. Counted among us. There will be those who are counted among us who will fall away. Jesus says it over and over again. Counted among us. Counted among us, but even more importantly, he received his share in this ministry. What was that share of? The power of the Holy Spirit. The power to work miracles, the power to preach the gospel, the kingdom of God, the power to call people to repentance, the power of God. He received his share. This, this is the faith of Judas. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows it. He knows it as much as any of the disciples. He's Jesus' friend. He has sweet fellowship with Jesus. He shares his food, walks in the temple with him, preaches his kingdom, works with his power. One of the chosen 12, empowered and loved by God. This is the man, as Scripture reveals him, a friend of Christ, and yet a devil. Do you have the faith of Judas? Have you worked the works of Judas? Have you known the power of Judas? If you can't run with the kindergartners, how are you going to run with the real athletes? If you haven't tasted Judas's faith, how can you have the faith of Paul? This is a warning. As much as Mary was a, a, an invitation and a powerfully good example, Judas is a warning. Now, I want to turn briefly to Judas's friends, and this may seem a digression, and to a certain degree it is, but I think it's important for us to understand this, and I don't know of another passage that proves this more powerfully than this, and it's a point that needs to be made. Judas is among the 12. He's accepted. He is included among them, and he shares fully in the glorious ministry that they are granted. Yet, there is a certain knowledge among the 12 that Judas was apart from them in two ways. First, there's an understanding that he's a thief. Now, Judas, the Bible tells us, kept the purse for the 12. He was the bankroller. He kept the bank, the, the wallet. But the Bible says he was in the habit of taking out of that wallet, which was the communal wallet, for his own needs. John tells us that it was Judas who led in complaining about the extravagance of Mary in anointing Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was going to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box. He used to take from what, what was put into it. Now this was known. That's how we know it today. 
They knew it, perhaps not fully, not all of them perhaps, but some knew this. And likely there was a suspicion among most of them that this was the case with Judas. It's also known by the 12 that Jesus has described one of them as a devil. One of them is going to betray him. One of them is a devil, one of them. It's known at the Last Supper that one of them who's there is going to betray him. It's even known who the betrayer is. John writes at the Last Supper, when Jesus said these things, he became troubled in the spirit. And spoke, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another perplexed. They're saying, what? Who? Really? I was reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom he loved. So Simon Peter gestured to the one he loved and said, said who's the one he's speaking of? He, that is the one he loved, leaning back thus on Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he's the one for whom I shall dip the piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took and gave it to Judas, the, Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the piece of bread, the Bible says, after that piece of bread was transferred from Christ to Judas, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to them. Some were thinking that because Jesus, Judas had the money box, Jesus was saying to him, go and buy things. Others that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he went out immediately and it was night. And so we have here this man, this friend, this sharer in the ministry, this equal who has been with them for three years. And yet they know that one of them is a devil. And yet they know that Judas is a thief. And yet even at this late date, Christ just hours from his death, a death that he has time and again foretold, they are clueless. And willfully so. Having no concern as to the nature of the depth of Judas's betrayal. How far that man had sunk in sin. Their friend, their three-year companion, blithely unaware of what is certainly the bitterness of this man who somehow finds it in himself to resent Jesus. We're not told how, we're not told why, but he resents Jesus and he's willing to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. This is how far sunk in sin this man is. He will betray Jesus. Don't tell me that it's not evident to the disciples that something's going on in this guy. These are not friends. These other disciples, they're not true friends. They're anything but friends. A friend is someone who cares, and these men care only for themselves. What are they? I'll tell you what they are. They're like any group of young guys. They're not friends. They're competitors. They do think about relationships between themselves when it comes to which of them is the greatest and who will sit on a throne by Christ. But they don't see the failure and they don't care for the one who's faltering. Jesus signals to these disciples who it will, is who will betray him by giving him the bread. And they let him go without a word. And you and I do the same thing. We see people faltering, falling down, and we go, well, that's too bad. Maybe the pastor will say something to him. Maybe the elders 
And then you come to me and you say, oh, David, I'm a little concerned about this guy. And what do I say to you when you come to me and you say you're concerned about something? I say, have you said anything? And what is the answer? 99 out of 100 times. No, I, I didn't really think it was my place to say anything. What friends are you? Do you love anyone here? Have you ever said to anyone, whoa, stop, you're on your way to destruction. Have you ever said it to one person in this group? These are not friends. They are jealous men, competitors. They have no love. It's no mistake that at this point, Jesus at the Last Supper begins talking, we find it in John, about how his disciples will be known by their love for one another. He's going after them and saying, you have no love. He just walked out. And you said, well, okay. Are you a friend to your brothers and sisters or a competitor? What are you doing that would prove your friendship to those around you who are failing? It is a terrible thing to realize that the wandering and failing souls of a church rest only on a few shoulders and that most of us will refuse to see what is obvious right before our eyes. There was plenty of evidence pointing to Judas's character, plenty of evidence about his decline into betrayal, there to be seen by all, yet not one sought and not one took it upon himself to stand up for Christ. If they don't love Judas, shouldn't they stand up for Christ and say, don't betray him? But they care nothing about Judas and little about Christ, and thus they aren't there at the cross either. They don't love. They have no love. So I want to turn finally to the fall of Judas. This is the, this is the point. This is the point of, that's so, so sobering and apropos. Judas is a man who's percolating. The fluids are flowing and they're getting deeper and stronger and more bitter as they flow. And he's percolating somewhere, somehow, in certain things. We don't know what. Bitterness, jealousy, anger, greed, all these things. Percolating, bitter. He has to be bitter if he's going to betray Jesus. Where it comes from, how, why, this is your bitterness. It doesn't need an object. It's out of the darkness of your heart. Bitter. How we pin our bitterness on others. We say, they caused it, this, that, the other. It's not true. Judas was absolutely bitter because Judas was an evil man, a devil. Not because anyone had done anything to him. Those of you who fight bitterness, remember, you hate yourself. You hate your own soul. You hate you because that's who you kill when you're bitter. It's awful. He's a bitter man. He's greedy. He's dishonest. 
He loves money. Here's the thing. This is the thing to remember about Judas. Judas does not love Jesus. And Judas does not love his fellow disciples. And you say, well, come on, David. Look at all he did. Look at all he was. A disciple, a chosen one. Paul writes about a life that lacks love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Does Judas speak the truth? Has he gone out and preached with power? Oh, yeah. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all, and have all faith so as to move mountains, can you have faith and be damned? Oh, yes. If I have all faith to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Judas healed the sick. Judas cast out demons. He had faith. But what did Judas love? I'll tell you what Judas loved. I mean, it's so prosaic, it's so base, it's so common. It's incredible. Yeah. The Bible tells us that this love is the root and foundation of all evil. Judas loves money. Judas loves money. He loves his money. He loves money. He loves money more than he loves Jesus. He loves gold more than he loves heaven. Really and truly, honestly, I'm not speaking my words, I'm speaking the words of Christ. There are people here in our midst this morning who would do better to give every penny they have away than to continue on the course they're on. Because their love for money is going to lead them to hell. Give it away. Give your money away. Isn't it telling that the good example Mary gives her money away and gains eternal life and glory? And Judas, for 30 stinking pieces of silver, loses his soul. And the point comes when Jesus gives him that piece of bread. The Bible tells us Satan entered into him. What a moment. He's been protected from that moment for three years by his presence at Christ's side. But 
The Bible says, my spirit will not contend with man, with sinful man forever. And God at that point says, done, done. Go get your money. He's done. Many men who are in the church, done. I'm done. And withhold churches that love money. Done. I'm taking your lamp away. Done. God keep us from this fate. It's a warning. It's a real warning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your speaking candidly to us in your word and telling us all the things that were going on in Judas. Father, I pray that we will love you and that we will not fall short of the kingdom of heaven. Not be dispatched to your left. Not be the virgins whose oil ran out or the slaves who hid the talent. Father, may we love. May we love you. May we love each other. And may we not love money. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.